Halloween Havoc 1995 took place on October 29, 1995 at the Joe Louis Arena in Detroit, Michigan. It had 13,000 people in the building, 7,000 paid with a gate of $138,048. Matt, when you talk about the best, when you talk about the worst of WCW, I think this pay-per-view encapsulates it all, Would you, wouldn't you say? All as in leaning into one side predominantly more than the other. This is, I think this is the sign that this company was heading in the wrong direction, if they were not aware of that already. Right from the opening video package, this pay-per-view does not start off with a good note, but I know I'm getting ahead of myself. I was not looking forward to rewatching this, because this show is about as notoriously bad a pay-per-view as you can find in this period. And there's some crap. It takes a lot in this era for you to say, I would not watch this show ever again, but sure, if you try hard enough, you could find a couple. Well, if you recall, we said the exact same thing last week. (laughs) I mean, WCW wasn't the only one in this rut of creativity. This pay-per-view was quite the interesting one because this was the start of me finding out, and this might be the reason why me and Adam are still great friends to this day, of me finding out that Adam had a black box. And so I would go to Adam's house, and we would watch these pay-per-views together. Now, at this point, I was friends with our other guy who would hang out with us, but I don't think he, he wasn't here for some reason. I don't remember why. It was just me and Adam. And in October of 95, you got you to remember, this was a couple months after the return of Mike Tyson to boxing circles, and Mike Tyson made a comeback. He came back from prison, fought a gentleman by the name of Peter McNeely in one of the most farcical pay-per-views boxing-wise, you'll ever see. This thing was hyped up. McNeely said he was going to come out, knock Tyson out, and he came out and just got clobbered within about, I'd say, about 30, 35 seconds. This was a couple months after that. So 1995 pay-per-view-wise, I mean, (laughs) it's just, like I said, it's the best and worst of sports pay-per-views, and I watched this at Adam's house. We curled up right on a couch on that TV. We we just kind of curled up in blankets because it was really cold that night. I remember that. And we sat and we watched this and our mouths were agape the entire time. You watched this later in life. I mean, did you know about the just the absurdity behind it when you first watched it? What, what were you thinking when you sat down to watch Halloween Havoc 1995 for this review, sir? Well, thanks to YouTube, I got a very nice preview at the time as what to expect. Because this... There was a long time where you could not watch some of these old shows unless you had either the official tapes or you recorded it while it was on pay-per-view with a VHS or you bootlegged it on the internet. Thanks to the network and Peacock and all these platforms, it's a lot easier to watch pay-per-views. So I saw bits and pieces on YouTube, but this was my first time actually watching it from beginning to end in one shot. Hmm. Will it be the last? I don't know. (laughs) Let's recap what's going on in WCW at this time. We talked about Fall Brawl a couple months ago. So he had gotten Kevin Sullivan in the cage. And then if you recall, that's when the Giant first made his appearance. And then Dungeon of Doom, it's in full effect. And this is also around the time, Matt, that Hogan was experimenting with going all black. And we would see this again in the next year. But this is kind of a, a trial run to see if maybe Hogan being healed wouldn't be a bad thing. I think the writing was on the wall. You had to turn the guy heel at this point. I guess he was watching a lot of Star Wars and wanted to dress like the Sith do. Well, he did say he went to the dark side. They even say that in this pay-per-view. Yeah, like this is, uh, you can call it Dark Side Hogan. Also, the previous week of Nitro, I don't, you said that you don't watch the Nitros leading up to this because you actually have a life. Well, Uh, I, I also value my time. You value your time. As I sit here reviewing this show. And we review two Ewok movies. Um, the week before this on Nitro, well, the unfortunate thing about Nitro around this time was it was only an hour, Matt. So there's only about 40, 45 minutes of time. But in this time, we ended that with a huge block of ice. And it explodes at the end. We get a brief glimpse of what's inside. Put it this way, it didn't quite look like a Yeti yet. No, this was like their their version of the gobbledygooker. <laughs> We're also seeing in the prelude to this that Flair's issues with Anderson and Pillman, they're continuing. And Ric Flair convinces Sting to join him in this fight against Anderson and Pillman. And Sting says, quote, 
if you turn your back on me again, I will leave you for dead. <laughs> God, this character is stupid. The, the keyword is again. Yeah. And Sting is to WCW what Tommy Dreamer was to ECW, where I don't think there was a person he partnered with that does not turn on him at some point throughout his tenure. Because <laughs> like, with Sting, it was fucking everybody. It was Flair. It's going to be Luger at a couple points. It's a good thing he went as the crow because he was not very good at keeping friendships. No, he was not. And I have things to say about that when we get to that match. Because if there's a tear of my favorite wrestlers, I've always said Hogan's my number one, Michaels is my number two, and Sting would be my number three. So, yeah, definitely have things to say about that once we get to it. Uh, The opening package of this, we have some spooky music and some terrible Microsoft clip art going on here. Oh, boy, some of these transition effects look like <laughs> really bad. find on a Macintosh computer. <laughs> We're seeing some of the giant's evil ways, and he's opening a ghastly gate for Hulk Hogan, and the narrator tells us to shudder at the thought of monster trucks. <laughs> That's very- I guarantee you I was shuddering at the thought of monster trucks. Yeah, it's like, good uh, thing it's Halloween, because I'm sure the horror movie they're thinking of is The Omen, because this is The Omen for things to come. <laughs> oh boy oh boy oh boy all right so let's get to the recap of the, our first match of the night they're recapping johnny b bad ddp and now, now fall brawl you'll recall that johnny b bad won the right to face sting for the u.s title however johnny b bad no showed the match they ended up giving him two opportunities brian pillman ended up replacing him the first time bad arrived at the end of the program he explained he had a flat tire and based on Bad's appearance with all the black smut and everything all over him, you would think, oh, yeah, he had to spend all that time repairing this tire. But DDP comes into this interview and mocks Johnny B. Bad for missing this opportunity. And Paige said, well, it shouldn't have been you anyway. It should have been me. And Max Muscle opens his big mouth and ruins the entire thing because he laughs at Bad for having four flat tires. And Johnny B. Bad says, how did you know it was four flat tires? I said, a flat tire! <laughs> this is Southern wrestling at its absolute peak back in like the mid-80s. But once we get to the mid-90s, <laughs> I don't know. I thought this was kind of fun, actually. What do you think of this? I'm willing to go with it because it's like the third least absurd thing on this pay-per-view. <laughs> uh, like, at least there's no, there's no supernatural shit. And at least this, unlike the main event, there's an explanation. Yeah, as there is an explanation. As stupid as it is, it makes the heels look completely incompetent. <laughs> and so we got to carry the tradition, Matt. Mid-90s through 96, when Mark Merrill left, leaves the company, he's got to be the opening match. So DDP's the one who carries the Bad Blaster to the ring and shoots it into the crowd. Bad then enters the arena with his back to the camera. You'd think he's just showing off his cape, but it's actually a swerve. The man in the aisle is a decoy. Johnny B. Bad jumps the guardrail and attacks DDP from behind. Pretty creative for this Johnny B. Bad character. Creative, and also this is something that the heels typically did. Yes, Definitely. I think this is Kevin Sullivan booking right here, and this is definitely Kevin Sullivan style booking. Although I say the lead up to this match is definitely Dusty Rhodes style. Like that's something Dusty Rhodes would pull in like the WCW, you know, when he was booking. Oh, for sure. So Johnny B. Bad, he's surprising Paige with some knee lifts until Paige regroups. They brawl into the crowd a bit, and Bad places a bucket on DDP's head. He just found this fucking bucket. <laughs> yeah. Johnny B. Bad controls the match with some arm holds and takedowns. DDP uses hair pulling, so Johnny B. Bad does the same. Page takes control by reversing 10 punches in the corner. And you know what? If there's one spot I hate in matches, and this happened all throughout the 80s and 90s, the 10 punches in the corner is fucking ridiculous. Oh, where the crowd chants yes. along every number? Yeah, it's. I, I think it's been beaten to death in 1995, let alone 2023. Are they still doing it to this day? Oh, yeah, you'll, st- you'll still see this in matches here or there. I love how, during this match, they are still on commentary talking about the monster trucks. <laughs> like, because there's a spot where he puts him in a rest hold after the uh, he, after he no-sells the ring post throw. Mm-hmm. Uh, Bobby Heaton goes, do you see the security on the roof? Detroit's finest are here. I've never seen that many boxes of donuts. <laughs> like, they, 
They're doing everything but selling the actual match. They're talking about the main event and just bad, you know, stereotypical jokes. Well, this is typical WCW. If you recall, once we get to the NWO, they do the same thing. There will be a tremendous match going on in the ring, and they will do nothing but talk about the storylines leading up to the NWO matches and what the NWO is doing. You know, and never mind what Rey Mysterio and Dean Malenko are doing right in front of your eyes, making history with great matches. No, we got to talk about what the NWO is doing. Yeah, the difference, though, there's no NWO on this show to speak of. You're absolutely right. So Paige is, is attacking Bad with some elbows, and he nails a pancake, one of my favorite moves that Paige used to do. But we're also getting, and God, this has been just a huge thing in these pay-per-views that we're covering, Matt. We're getting tons of chin locks here. Yeah, I guess bad pay-per-views are synonymous with repeated chin locks. Like instead of five stars, it should be five chin locks out of five. Five chin locks out of five. <laughs> Paige orders, yells orders to Max, who distracts the referee. This allows Paige to choke Johnny B. Bad with some wrist tape, bad rallies, and gives DDP some atomic drops. He follows them with some flying head scissors. And this, of course, gets a 10 from Kimberly because this is something we had to do. We had to do. We had to have Kimberly on the outside giving number ratings to every move. Bad uses a sit-out powerbomb, but Paige responds with a DDT. The fight spills to the floor again. Bad fakes out Paige on a dive and nails the bad day. Get it, Matt? Bad day. Max grabs Bad to stop the rally. Paige almost collides with his bodyguard. Johnny B. Bad uses the distraction to drop kick them into each other. Max interferes again, but he hits Paige by mistake. This allows Johnny B. Bad to cover for the win at 17 minutes and one second. Johnny B. Bad is your new TV champion. Wow, 17 minutes. Too long. I think I think it hurts it because it's it's good as far as what's doing, but there's there's too much shenanigans with the with the managers. And, and I also think there's way too many near falls. Towards the end, where it's like the the miscommunications with Max, you know, that works if you're doing that as the finish, but they tease it like four times during the match. I I always like near falls though, because I, I think it, it, you're kind of biting your nails a bit to see what's going on here. I I do like the near falls. I just hate how this thing was about. I'd say at least eight minutes too long. All right, next match: Macho Man Randy Savage versus the Zodiac. God, they're still pushing this fucker. <sighs> well. This wasn't initially supposed to be the Zodiac. This was supposed to be Kamala, the Ugandan giant. If you recall, that huge heel from the 80s that they brought back for the Dungeon of Doom. But guess what, Matt? Even though he's on a major pay-per-view here, he refused to lose to Savage. I don't know what it was about these guys who... They they just refused to lose a pretend fight. I never got that. Especially when you're making decent money. Absolutely. And you're not losing to some jobber. Like, I, I get a certain amount of justification with that, but you're losing to the, you know, one of the top stars in the company. Yep. Well, the dumb thing about this was the freaking the build-up to this, where it's like, if Macho Man wins his match, and if Luger wins his match, then the two of them will fight. Just announce a match between the two of them. Yeah. We get Savage twice on this card. And don't get me wrong, Savage is one of my favorite wrestlers. But, you know, instead of putting him out here in this 1 minute 30 second squash... Why not just put him out there against Luger and be the end of it instead of having this whole storyline around, okay, and Sting's the one who comes out. He's trying to make peace. He says, okay, if you beat him, you get to face him. If you beat him, you get to face him too. Why not just have them face each other and just have it be the end of it? Yeah, and the only interesting thing about this match is when the fan runs in. (laughs) Oh, yeah. All right. This isn't going to be that big of a recap, but let's get into it. At the beginning, Savage is jumping the Zodiac, but here's this huge, here's this fan just entering the ring. Randy Anderson, of all people, the referee is tackling him while Savage and Zodiac, they're brawling to the floor. And uh, WCW officials, they're arriving to handle the situation. And Randy Savage was always the most professional in these situations. You know, he was the one who always kind of grabbed the bull by the horns and took control. Meanwhile, while that's going on, Savage and Zodiac, they're taking turns ramming each other into the rail outside and the post. They return to the ring, and once everything's clear, Zodiac misses a diving splash. Savage then used the opening to hit the flying elbow for the win at, like I said, 1 minute 30 seconds. Well, if the fan didn't run in, this would have been 20 seconds long. I mean, can you even give this a rating? Like, No. <laughs> no. It's just, just dud with a capital D. When we did our opening show and you were like, I don't want to do star ratings for each match. I was like, oh, God, I, I think it's good. I think you need to do star ratings for each match. But then when something like this happens, it's like, okay, I understand your line of thinking here. <laughs> we then get 
I would call the best promo of Mark Merrill's career. I actually really do like this kind of speech that Merrill's giving, Johnny B. Bad is giving as he wins this title. And let's not forget, at this point, Mark Merrill is a motivational speaker. He goes out, he does tons of speeches to schools and things. And you know what? This is kind of the beginnings of that. I, I really did enjoy him taking this character, this Dusty Rose-created character, and turning him into an inspiration. I like this uh, promo by him. What do you think? Yeah, well, you can definitely see the seeds of what he'd be doing later. You know, you can see a correlation. It's good because it's it's showing that even your mid-card titles can be significant props for viable stars. Mm Mm-hmm. Speaking of viable stars, that's not what we're going to get in our next match. (laughs) Next match is, uh, well, Karasawa with Colonel Parker versus Road Warrior Hawk. We're getting kind of a recap of this feud, and I remember this when Karasawa broke Hawk's arm after this bout at Clash of Champions, and so they did this so that Hawk could heal from this arm injury that he actually legitimately had. So we're getting this match. They brawl, and Hawk nails a shoulder tackle and a net breaker. He follows those with some chops and kicks before growling, because of course he does. And Heenan has the line of the night where he says, it sounded like a fat girl sitting on a beanbag. <laughs> Hawk, uh, no, the, the, the other one is when there's the sign that says Bobby the Brain for Mayor. And he goes, yeah, the last thing I need is a pay cut and living in a crappy neighborhood. <laughs> that was a great line. Hawk misses a corner charge and Kurosawa then attacks his arm. Hawk responds with a gut wrench suplex and a powerbomb. Kurosawa takes control when Parker trips Hawk, but he misses a flying elbow. Hawk then sends Kurosawa to the floor and nails Parker with a jumping clothesline. That was a mistake. Kurosawa uses the opening to ram Hawk into the post. They return to the ring where Kurosawa lands a Samoan drop. He then covers while Parker holds down Hawk's feet for leverage. And this is enough for the win. At 3 minutes, 15 seconds, Hawk loses in 3 minutes. Hawk losing is big enough. But Hawk losing in 3 minutes, this had to have been a punishment for something because these guys never, ever lost. Yeah, they were they were one of the most protected duos. They, they were the guys who knocked around people like Crusher and Dick the Bruiser who were like basically unbeatable monsters. Here he's losing in three minutes to a guy who's beneath him. At least they had like shenanigans with his manager for the extra leverage, but God, this was crap. Like Hawk no sold gravity at one point. Yeah. (laughs) When he tries to trip him uh, during the match. Like it's just, it's just bad. Really bad. You know, what's not bad though, Matt is our next segment because we didn't get a Randy Savage promo. Yeah. With the, uh, the, the close-up on his arm. Because we didn't mention he's wrapped up for his yes with uh, the Zodiac. Yep, wrapped up because his arms, her, arms hurt. And he's also, you know, he's calling out Hogan, saying that he knows he can beat Hogan, even though they're both faces at this point. And I just love this fucking promo because Savage comes out of nowhere with, your mustache is crooked. Yeah, well, Gene didn't take kindly to that because he went off too. Yeah. Just a great back-and-forth promo. I I hate the fact that both of these guys are no longer with us because I think they would both just excel on the podcast circuit and just do wonders talking about these kinds of stories. Oh, God. Well, people would listen just to listen to Savage's voice. (laughs) Yes. It seems like you're listening to it anyway because every single wrestling podcast you hear, someone's doing an impression of it. Yeah, basically, because everyone's got a story. Yeah, exactly. Our next match... This is interesting. Yeah, this is this also is an ECW for that matter because you got two, I'm, two guys yeah. who are synonymous with that company. Yeah, will be. Um, yeah, Sabu with the Sheik versus Mister JL, who is Jerry Lynn, by the way. This match is uh, quite interesting. Sabu he slides into the ring, but JL gives him an enziguri. They brawl to the floor, and Sabu nails an ice ie moonsault. Oh, boy. And in the first minute, there's no selling because there's that part where Jerry Lynn no-sells the whip. Yep. And then Sabu no-sells getting thrown into the guardrail. Like, <laughs> these guys were checked out. Yes. And WCW was not the right platform for either of them because Sabu, he's Mr. Botchamania for a reason. Mm-hmm. He's one of those guys who, you know, find me the great Sabu matches that don't involve barbed wire or tables or three other people. That's my main problem with ECW, and that's why I, I never really watched it, was because of that. Sabu follows this up with a somersault plancha, but he misses it. JL answers with a flying crossbody to the outside, and then Sabu misses a moonsault, but JL hits one of his own. JL continues with a sit-out powerbomb. However, he misses a corner charge. Sabu uses the opening to nail a slingshot leg drop, and then JL responds with a German suplex in the corner. 
He climbs the turnbuckles, but Sabu crotches him. He gives JL a victory roll off the top rope, which I thought was actually pretty monstrous. Yeah, that's, that's, a, that's a spot that could be very dangerous, and I would not trust <laughs> yes. Sabu to do that. Uh, yeah, absolutely. This is not enough, though, and J- JL drop kicks Sabu out of the ring, but Sabu catches him at the ropes and lands a split-legged moonsault for the win at 3 minutes, 25 seconds. You get the feeling after that 17-minute match, like all of, the, all of these guys are kind of told to narrow their matches down because we have like a one-minute squash. We have a, a couple three-minute matches. Are they just making up for the fact that that last match ran a little long? I don't know, but this, this feels like, all right, get your shit in and get out because this match is a glorified spot best. Not a lot of psychology. As I mentioned, a lot of no-selling. Like, there's that part where Sabu does the springboard leg drop, but misses Jerry Lynn and probably broke his fucking nose, landed right in his face, <laughs> and Jerry Lynn no-sells it, gives him the suplex. It's just very sloppy. It feels rushed, which it probably was. Yeah. This is just like, it's like watching a video game, but it's all glitchy, where, like, you press mm-hmm. the button to do the finisher, and it doesn't it doesn't look, look right because the physics are off. It's just, it's crap. And we're capping it off with a fireball to JL's face thrown by the Sheik, which was something Sheik did throughout his entire career. You're right. This pretty much was just a spot fest, just capped off by the major spot from the 80s of a fireball in the face. Oh, boy. So next, that's right. we are talking to the master. He's there with Kevin Sullivan, who's looking so disinterested. He looks like he would to be anywhere else, even though he booked this shit. The Master's there screaming some complete nonsense that the moon is full over Detroit and the stars are aligned. It's a new day in Tokyo and there will be a total eclipse. Oh, boy. Oh, my God. Like this shit. Ed Wood would be like, oh, come on. That looks fake as shit. (laughs) He promises that Sullivan will walk upon the galaxies because of the insurance policy that they have. And, of course, that insurance policy will be the Yeti. Taskmaster tells Hogan that the insurance policy is there. And he claims that Hogan's evil is out of control because now he wears black. And then Sullivan yells about their monster truck being the strongest. He tells Hogan that he has no friends. Sting, Savage, and Luger, they're all vultures clicking at his heels. The master pats him on the hand to show his approval. This is WCW as most ridiculous, and pardon me, but I fucking loved it. I love it in in an ironic sort of way, but... yeah. This has all the credibility of, like, a canon's Masters of the Universe. Like, uh, like that. this feels like a sequel to that. This is so, this is so bad, but I, was la- I laughed my ass off for, like, five minutes. <laughs> I did, too. I, I right. wish they did. Um, you know, the, there's that South Park episode with Scientology, and uh, when they're explaining Scientology, there's a subtitle that says, yes, this actually happened, or they actually believe this. They should put that underneath this entire segment. When they between this and when the Yeti breaks out of ice, they should be like, "Yes, this actually aired in 1995." We're then seeing Hogan prove how evil he is by helping Mean Gene Oakland give away a Harley Davidson. <laughs> like, if you're trying to sell Hogan being this darker character, why have him stand with this fan and give away this fucking bike? And this fan could not look less interested. This is like having the Undertaker sell houses. <laughs> They do kind of turn it into an anti-giant promo here, and Hogan saying that he's going to lay the giant next to his father in Detroit, which, God, every single time they fucking make the giant sound like Andre the Giant's son, I want to punch them in the face. <sighs> I hated the fact that they tried selling him as Andre's son, and by the way, that was a Hogan idea, too. Yeah, I mean, at least it was justified. I mean, you couldn't find a guy who looked more like a successor. Um, mm-hmm. Certainly, that look... I mean, he was also far more agile than Andre ever was. But, but much getting... like Andre, you know, he's tied to Hogan, but in both good ways and bad ways. Yep, and Paul White did interviews would bring that up, too. All right, speaking of useless crap, let's talk about Alex Luger. <laughs> All right, we're going to get to Alex Luger, but before we get to that, we get a promo for World War Three because we got to promote that there's going to be a 60-man battle royal. And... So this is going to be a new concept that they're pretty much going to, and we're going to talk about this in a couple of weeks when we get back to WCW, but they're really trying to top the Royal Rumble here. Oh, yeah. Well, it's double. Oh, yeah. You want, you've got 30 men and one ring. We're going to have 60 men and three rings. Yep. Oh, I can't wait to talk about that. All right. So let's get to it. So Matt's favorite wrestler, Lex Luger, he's in the ring next against Ming, who's here with the Taskmaster. And look, I don't mind this match on paper. 
the problem? You give these guys 13 fucking minutes? Luger's attacking and giving Ming a sloppy catapult. Ming responds with some kicks, but Luger sends Ming to the floor. He's attacking Ming's arm, so Ming answers with some chops and biting. He then takes control when Luger misses a corner charge. He nails Luger with a shoulder breaker and a pile driver. And once again, we're getting rest holes as he's wearing Luger down until they collide on some double cross bodies. Ming recovers and sends Luger to the floor. He keeps him down there while Sullivan's whispering something to Lex. Lex returns. He fights Ming on the apron. He suplexes Ming into the ring and nails some clotheslines. He then hits a power slam, but Ming fetches some gold spike from his boot. He nails Luger in the throat and covers him. Sullivan enters the ring and taps Lex with his boot, causing a disqualification at 13 minutes and 14 seconds. We have a uh, smaz at the end here. We don't even have a clean finish. And you're going to make this that long for an unclean finish. Yeah, all for a obvious swerve that makes them look even dumber in hindsight. Because if he's secretly the, the sleeper agent for the Dungeon of Doom, why is he wrestling one of his own guys? Like, they're really going at it because there's part where, like, men gives him a spike pile driver. There's a blatant chokehold. Mm-hmm. Um, like, they're wrestling a physical style of match, but it just, it's, it, this is one of the things, like, it's called over, it's like overbooking. Where when you analyze it, it doesn't really make any sense. And it also helps that what they're doing in the ring is not great to begin with. Don't buy into the story. You know, they're trying to sell Lex Luger as a tweener, you know, shade of gray, which I don't think ever really worked for him because we know by the end of the show that the, they'll solidify where he's going. God, th- th- this show is a slog at this point. I'm like, <laughs> pr- I'm praying for mercy. What's great about this to kind of peek behind the curtain a bit is the other night, I think it was like 10 o'clock at night. You said you had just finished, you know, you put the boys to bed and you had finished doing something and you're like, and now I'm about ready to pop in Halloween Havoc 95. And I'm like, wow, it's 10 o'clock at night. You're going to last through that? Because, <laughs> yeah, you're right. At this point, the matches that are long are too long. The matches that are short, I kind of wish were a little longer. Yeah, and none of the, outside of the opening, most of the actual work is crap. And, and again, you have another borderline, like a non-finish. Like, he calls to the bell as if he's like, all right, I got to stop the bleeding. This match is over. <laughs> like, if you work 15 minutes just for that garbage ending with the go up in the pen and Sullivan breaks it up against his own guy. Just so, so dumb. <sighs> we then get a promo that proves Paul White will needs to do a little bit of work on his promos. And to be fair, I think he does. I think he becomes a better promo. But man, this this one with Mean Gene here, I think you can see that he's a little nervous at this point because this is going to this is going to be his first match since he burst onto the scene. Like his first match is against the biggest icon of that era. That's got to be kind of nerve-wracking and I think it's kind of being shown here as he's just kind of grunting and smiling and snarling throughout this entire promo. Yeah, like, and he, he looks really unfocused. Like, I don't know if he's shaking out of nerves or if he's trying to be, like, you know, the, the unstoppable monster who's just out of control. Yeah, it's not great. He'd certainly get better in the years to come, but, God, they're putting way too much effort into this monster truck idea. They most certainly are, sir. All right, let's get to what I'm going to go ahead and call the match of the night. Sting and Ric Flair versus Arn Anderson and Flying Brian. So... Fans are kind of chanting, we want Flair as Sting's coming out, and Flair has supposedly been beaten up in the back. Sting's fending off some double teaming and makes both men regroup. Pillman yells at the cameraman. Sting then invades both men and takes them down again. Pillman's entering the match and slaps Sting. So, in essence, let's just recap here. This is a two-on-one because Flair's not here. Yeah. And Sting's taking these guys on by himself. Yeah, because the impetus was that Flair got attacked and needed, like, medical attention. This one of the most obvious swerves you you will ever see because it's Rick fucking Flair. And that's why it makes this character look so stupid. Like, I love Sting. I really do. Like, he's one of my favorite wrestlers of all time, as I mentioned. But he just looks dumb in this. And they kind of put emphasis on this because they had Flair help Sting with some charity or something. And Sting brought kids in the ring in the weeks leading up to this on WCW Saturday night. So it's... They're trying their best to make this seem like, okay, Flair's actually genuine on this. I'm going to believe him. But goddamn, we've had five years of these two. Actually, no, at this point, we've had seven years of these two going back and forth and Flair always turning on Sting. If we recall, in 1990, he turned on Sting in The Horseman, which was a great angle. And, you know, Flair and Sting, they've been going at it since 1988 at this point. But it just makes him look dumb. It's like, look, you've had seven years of swerves with this guy. Why do you think this is going to be any different? And you're... 
wrestling two people that he's relatively close to. So yep. it just makes it, oh, God, it's so good. I mean, what they're doing in the ring is really good. The crowd's into it. They really change yeah. the player. Yeah, this match is good. I'm not going to say this match is bad. Pillman's entering the ring, and he's slapping Sting a bit. He lures Sting to the floor, but Sting evades this trap. And Pillman offers a handshake. Sting kicks him in the gut and nails a press slam. I always love when Sting did this press slam. Arn Anderson gets back into the ring, and Sting catapults him into Brian Pillman and launches Pillman right onto the guardrail. However, Anderson's taking control by ramming Sting against Brian Pillman's head. Sting's in trouble. He's getting pounded on for, God, I think it was about six, seven minutes. And then here's Flair. He's arrived. He's dressed in street clothes, and his head is bandaged up. Rick Flair's in the corner, and he's cheering Sting while Arn and Brian are double-teaming him. They attempt a rocket launcher, a fucking Midnight Express move, but Sting raises his knees. Arn and Pillman, they cut off Sting's tag attempts before Arn puts Sting in an abdominal stretch. Pillman's using a half-crab, and both men are assisting with all the leverage here. They use more double-teaming and holds until Sting rallies. They're just really teasing this, this hot tag, as we call it, of Sting tagging Flair, aren't they? Yeah, and, and this style of tag team wrestling has been around for, like, decades, where you get the heat on them, mm-hmm. you build up to the hot tag. Like, this is very, you know, scientifically elementary. Um, but it yep. works because, you know, of who's involved. Arn Anderson then hits one of my favorite moves of all time, the Spine Buster. I love his Spine Buster. They work on Sting's leg a bit, and then Flair's just yelling at Sting, Stand tall! Come on, buddy! Come to me! <laughs> Which makes the end of this match so much funnier. Sting's rallying by ramming Arn and Brian Pillman's heads together, and this opens the door for Sting to tag. Flair enters the match, and he gets the hot tag, and he struts before punching Sting in the face. <laughs> All three men attack Sting, so the ref calls for the bell at 17 minutes and 9 seconds. I thought this match was great. I think it was great storytelling. I think the drama, that the crowd was really drawn in with the drama. And I think they reacted pretty well to the swerve. You just hear, oh, from the crowd, even though you can see it coming. I think this kind of brought back the old flair. And uh, we're kind of getting a semi-horseman reunion that I think was far better than the last one we got. What are you thinking, sir? Yeah, as obvious as it was, Flair is just a natural heel. It's always been his strength. And I think you needed the horsemen to come back together. And you got these three. I mean, they'll add a fourth one, which we'll talk about, you know, soon. Um, but, it, but it was the right move because the Dungeon of Doom was on its last legs and, quite frankly, should have died well before it was conceived. You know, can, can you abort a, a stable um, after it's already born? I guess not, but the post-match stuff is great where, like, beating him down, he takes off the bandage, and Flair grabs the mic and just starts yelling as only he can. This this saved the show from being abysmal throughout. I'm not going to completely agree with that. I think there's things that are ironically great. You know what? I think a lot of what makes this era and possibly later eras, I don't know, of WCW watchable is Mean Gene Okerlund. He is, I think, very underrated as far as a promo guy, guy who gets these guys on the mic. Because he's in the aisle, and he's just calling all this what happened disgusting. But he's still plugging the hotline, which I thought was great. And then we're seeing, as you said, the post-match stuff of the horsemen coming up to the mic. And Anderson, Flair, and Pillman just pretty much mugging for the camera, saying how bloodthirsty the fans are for wanting these horsemen back together. And I don't know. I thought this was all pretty good stuff. We didn't have Mike, Mike Tanay in the backstage area. He's uh, he's also perplexed by what's going on with the Horsemen, but he doesn't have much time to ferment Matt because he has Lex Luger for a promo. Bad idea. <laughs> <laughs> and Luger's with his trusty white towel here. Tanay's recapping Luger's match with Ming and asks him for his thoughts. Luger thinks things are perplexing. He believes forces want his match with Savage to happen. And then Luger isn't sure he's 100%, but he promises to be all over Savage when that match starts. Luger says that he stated his goal from day one was to get Savage into the ring. And then he claims that the total package gets what he wants. And he wants to take Savage apart piece by piece. So you're saying this is a tweener? Yeah, because that's what they're presenting. All right. Speaking of presenting, you ready? Oh, God. <laughs> All right, so Shivani and Heenan, they're talking about the monster truck match coming up. And Heenan's calling Hogan a disgrace and says that Hogan will get what he deserves. They recap the giant Hogan situation, which we just talked about in the beginning of this thing. And this narrator of this video package is talking about the monster truck match. 
and they are showing graphics of the trucks morphing into Hogan and the Giant. God, like th- th- this shit would make the Transformers embarrassed. Here's what I'll say. I'm going to give kind of a backhanded compliment here. Let's not forget where WCW was two years before this, man. They were in the literal shitter. Yeah. Okay. When Bischoff took over this thing, there was no way they could get something like this going. And I think what Bischoff is doing here, because when he was at a monster truck rally, he saw an opportunity to kind of meld the two. So he's trying to get an inner promotion thing going here. I'll say this about Bischoff. He's trying. And I think this was a real ballsy move. Now, did it work? I think we've already foreshadowed our thoughts on whether it worked or not. But I admire the attempt to try something different here. And this feels all Bischoff. What about you? Uh, This feels like throwing shit at the wall and seeing what sticks. It's original, except for, remember the match? I don't, WCW has a history of like bad gimmick matches. Oh, yeah. I mean, we're going to talk about the San Francisco 49er match five years down the line. That's one of my favorites. Remember the match? It was like Dustin Rhodes and some guy, they're on a back of a truck. Yeah, that was the down- Blacktop Bully. Yep. Yeah, it was, they would smash from Demolition. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was really fucking bad. They, they had a hard-on for vehicles. Like, they they loved using oversized vehicles, and I guess it helps make you feel, like, larger than life, but this feels like a promotion for, like, a Hogan monster truck movie that never got made. Like, if this was a tie-in for, like... Over the top two, it would have made sense. <laughs> but as its own independent thing, it's just dumb. And like, the rules are never explained. You built the trucks before knowing what they're going to do. Like, what the fuck is this? Here's the question I always had. And I even had this when me and Adam initially watched this pay-per-view. How the fuck did they get those two trucks on the roof of this building? I mean, much like a lot of things in this main event, it's not explained. <laughs> I just found that odd. So we're getting some dude named Bob Chandler, who supposedly built Hogan's truck. He's explaining the rules to this thing. Despite what you're saying, Matt, we get a pretty clear version of the rules here. Spoiler alert. No, we don't get a clear version of the rules. Basically, what's going on is the winner has to push the other truck out of the circle. That's how it works. Yeah, if it's built like Hogan, that means it always goes over and the back gives out halfway through. (laughs) Good one. And you know what? As a kid... I loved monster trucks. I had a little Bigfoot toy as a kid, the the monster truck Bigfoot. I had a Bigfoot video game as a kid. I loved monster trucks. As a teenager, I was past the monster truck. And if you're going to put a guy I grew up idolizing into a monster truck match, I was going to be tuned out. And this just does not go well. The two trucks, by the way, This is the recap. The two trucks are pushing each other back and forth. We're getting stock footage of Hogan and the Giant driving, and it's the same stock footage over and over, which was great. But when you cut to the wide shots, you actually see the real drivers in those shots. God. And by the way, they look nothing like Hogan and the Giant. The editing for this is not great. And I also love they keep cutting back to Bischoff and Bobby Heenan. They all talk about, like, how these guys could, like, die yeah. Where it's like the, you know, drive off the top of the building or the gas tank blows up. I'm like, you should have put this in the video package. <laughs> By this pay-per-view, someone might die. Uh, Bischoff is trying his best to make this sound exciting. And then the guy who built the truck is saying that he expected Hogan to be slow. Of course, you knew that he was going to jump all over that joke. <laughs> oh, he did not hesitate. Hogan's back axle. Breaks the plane, but if this isn't enough, Hogan doesn't job. The Giants pushing Hogan into a charge. Fireworks explode. However, Hogan's rallying, and he pushes the Giant out of the circle at five minutes. Yeah, much like a standard Hogan match. Shakes off the monster heel, decisively beats him. Yep. But that's not all, Matt. That's not all. The Giants exiting the truck. And he's chasing Hogan to the edge of the roof. They're fighting, and the Giants choking Hogan on this roof. They move onto the ledge, and Hogan breaks the Giants' grip. However, this causes the Giants to stumble and fall over the edge. This this, this shit, it's basically the ending of Temple of Doom. <laughs> where, where it's, you know, you have to break the grip, and the guy falls into the abyss below. Now, they're trying to sell. Is it the parking lot side or the water side? By the way, the Joe Lowe's Arena did not have a water side. (laughs) Oh, my God. Again, WCW, 
at its absolute best or worst, depending on what angle you want to take on this. Uh, yep, it's uh, <laughs> we, we, he wins the match by homicide. <laughs> <laughs> but that's not all, Matt, because Hogan's proving why he never catapulted into the acting ranks that The Rock did, because we're seeing him panic and run for help and say that wasn't supposed to happen. Bischoff is shocked. The dude who built the trucks is looking like he's regretting being a part of this whole thing. And Heenan asks again if he fell off the parking lot side or the riverside. Oh. Bischoff then leaves to handle the situation. And you should have done that in the booking stages, sir. <laughs> oh, my God. Wait, there's more. <laughs> there is more. We're going to get to that. Next, we're seeing... Macho Man Randy Savage versus Lex Luger. Before the match is getting going, Matt, I mean, Tony Cervani's his tone is way down. Heenan's freaking out, saying, I knew this guy's father. Here we go with this again. Uh, Heenan's demanding to know what happened. He's getting emotional. And then Tony just wants to discuss the match. But Heenan's having none of it. And the match gets started. Luger offers Savage a handshake, but Savage attacks him. And then Savage is whipping Luger into the corner, but Luger nails a clothesline. Jimmy Hart then approaches the ring. Luger stomps Savage and chokes him with his boot. By the way, is this like the 12th time we've seen Jimmy Hart at the at ringside during this pay-per-view? Yeah, I was going to say he played drinking game with the amount of times he's, uh, I'm, he's showing up. I'm, I'm telling you. Luger dazes Savage, who swings at the ref. Luger then sends Savage to the floor, gives him a jumping axe handle. But Savage reverses Luger into the rail and the steps. They then return to the ring where Savage attempts a flying axe handle. Luger punches him. However, Jimmy Hart climbs onto the apron and distracts the ref. Savage spots this, so he whips Lex into Jimmy Hart. This allows Savage to land a flying elbow for the win at 5 minutes 23 seconds. At least it wasn't long, right? Yeah, so much for the goodwill, too. It's right after this, this trash talking. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I think this whole situation between Savage and Luger, I think this this made for an interesting feud idea, but like a lot of things that WCW did, the execution wasn't always the best. Yeah, and they, they had the blow-off for this earlier than you would think, because this is something you probably could have built up more of the, you know, because they played Luger off as like the WWF in yep. the uh, which is hypocritical because that's where Savage came from. Um, exactly. But but Lex Luger is so bad at the end of this match where he, where he's like overly emphasizes the grunting and oh I love uh, it though. But he sucked. I'm going to put like a clip of all those into like at the end of one of these one day. It's just so funny because his grunting is the best. All right, so we're preparing for the main event, Matt. Even though yeah, we're we supposedly even though don't have, have died. <laughs> Even though we don't, we supposedly don't have somebody. They're sending Michael Buffer out to earn his three hundred grand for this pay per view by announcing the main event. Heenan doesn't seem like he cares. He starts leaving, but then returns to a seat. He's angry. He can't get any answers. And Shivani's trying really, really hard to not break character at this point. But Buffer is announcing it. He he introduces the giant. Uh, Hogan's entering the ring instead. However, Hogan asks them to stop his music and then grabs the mic. He says what happened was an accident. He wasn't supposed to happen. He apologizes for it. Hogan starts talking more. But guess what, Matt? The Dungeon of Doom music plays, and oh my god, he's risen from the dead. The giant is here without a scratch, and he's not even wet. Yep, and no, uh, he's not wearing like a neck brace or anything. And Hogan is once again showing why he didn't rate, become that big of an actor by the shock looks on his face. He's bailing to the floor. Hogan uh, then pulls off his bandana to reveal that he has the Taskmaster markings on his forehead. All right, so let's get to the match. This match with Hogan against the zombie. He can't knock down the giant, and he fails to slam him. The giant responds by attacking Hogan's back. He gives Hogan some Irish whip, whips and chops, but Hogan places giant's hands on his throat for a choke. Did you catch that? Like, Hogan literally grabs his hand and puts it on his throat. Yeah, well, because well, he was still greener than goose shit at this point. Absolutely. Why put him out here for this big event like this? You know, yeah, like you said, he's so green. They then do a long test of strength. Oh, my God, was this eternity. Giant controls it and kicks Hogan when he rallies. He also attempts a suplex, but Hogan puts a stop to that. They do a slam instead. 
Giant then misses a leg drop. Hogan gives Giant 10 punches in the corner again and sends the Giant to the floor. He starts leaving, so Hogan stops him. Hogan then uses some eye pokes and punches to the throat. Hogan, in this period, like, from 93 on, he put this, like, heel shit in his repertoire where his, like, eye, eye gouges and back rigs and... Dude, he did that his entire career. There were moments even during his huge run in the 80s. And I know you haven't watched that era, but he would do like a series of elbows after he had a guy on the ground, right? And so he did like two elbows, and then he raised his elbow up to do a third, and then he would just rake his eyes with his boot. He did shit like this all the time. I love how, like, during, during this, up to this point, like, they, I swear to God, that, that rest, that test of strength was three minutes. Absolutely. Yeah, way long. About as long as the bear hug in WrestleMania 3, which I guarantee they're trying to recreate here. The giant counters with a backbreaker and puts Hogan in a bear hug. Speaking of WrestleMania 3, he uses this twice before nailing a choke slam. Hogan then kicks out at two and hulks up. He lands the big boot and slams the giant. Hogan follows with the leg drop. But Jimmy Hart nails the referee with the belt. Hogan doesn't see this, and he looks around and he sees that the referee's down. Didn't realize that Jimmy Hart was the one who knocked him down. He tells Jimmy Hart to go help the referee. Hart then fakes doing that and then hits Hogan with the belt. Hogan no-sells this and turns to attack Hart for his betrayal. And all of this causes a disqualification for the Giant at 14 minutes and 30 seconds. God, this pay-per-view should have been sponsored by the Atari Jaguar with all the (laughs) no-selling. Oh, man. Did you get that from the Bobby Heenan joke book? I I had to keep myself entertained during this last (laughs) few minutes. Like, what can I say beyond just... What the hell am I watching? <laughs> like a lot of the movies, like a lot of the movies we review, where like you'll either force me to watch it or I'll force you to watch it, and then we get on the paper, and then we get on the podcast. We're like, what did we just watch, and why did I watch it? Yeah, like this is a <laughs> this is an escalation of of garbage. Like, not only did Jimmy Hart turn on him, but what a surprise, Lex Luger turns on him too. They are trying to sell the giant as this monster, and a fourteen minute match, a fourteen minute non dominant match isn't the way to do it. Again, you had to build him up here. At least give him somebody to beat. I don't care if it's Beefcake. I don't care who it is. Just give him somebody. You put him in with Hogan, and it doesn't work well. And then you have Hogan kick out of the chokeslam, by the way. However, Matt, you know what? I would say this whole two hours and 35 minutes or whatever we are at this point is kind of worth it because we're about to get the most entertaining part of the night. (laughs) Entertainment in quotes. There we go. So Hogan's grabbing Jimmy Hart, but the giant attacks him. He puts Hogan in another bear hug while Hart calls for reinforcements. Savage and Luger arrive, but both Jimmy and Lex attack Randy Savage. So we're showing that, okay, Luger's actually a heel at this point. But then it happens. It's the Yeti. Wait, no, that's a mummy. That's not a guy who looks like he got out of ice. That looks like a guy who just... Got out of some coffin with bandages wrapped around him. It's more like toilet paper. Because this is the drizzling shits. <laughs> it's, like, it's like they watched the Shockmaster and said, how can we make this even worse? Intentionally. Because the Shockmaster was ruined because he botched his entrance. He enters the ring and he's joining this huge fray. He then grabs Hogan from behind, by the way. And uh, what exactly is he doing? I'm sorry. I remember watching this with Adam, and we were both just like, what the fuck is happening right you, you can't, like, remember, this is the company that in a year, less than a year from now, will overtake the WWF. Just put that into context. <laughs> by the same booker, by the way. This is the same booker who's going to be doing that. Arn Anderson, when... This guy got back at stage, told him that it looked like a monkey hupping a football with what he was doing to Hogan out here. I don't know. Is that a, is that a, a, a worn comparison? or? <laughs> I don't know what you compare this to. What were you thinking? I mean, you knew this was happening, right? Yeah, I, I, mean, you, I, I remember knew, this. I knew what this represented, but it, it just it's like every decision they made was the wrong one. You don't put over your monster heel in a strong way. You have all the outside interference. You turn Luger heel, which doesn't nobody really cares about. Then the Giant wins by DQ. Yeah. Like, everything you could do wrong, they did. Now, this Yeti character, 
This was not supposed to go like this. You can say that about a lot of WCW. You sure can. You know who they had hired for this? No, I don't. Remember a guy by the name of Giant Gonzalez who fought Undertaker in WrestleMania uh-huh. 9? That's who they initially had for this. But he had to back out. He had health concerns. So they called this dude Ron Weiss, who is this... I mean, he's a huge dude if you look at him. I mean, that's not platforms. That is the guy's actual height. He's taller than the giant. But once he got out there, he had all this gear on. He didn't know what the fuck to do. And I don't think anybody gave him any guidance or anything. And he just goes out there. He has all these bandages on. What the fuck else is he supposed to do except go out there, crap Hogan, and dry hump him? <laughs> yeah, th- th- this show will put you off to bear hugs. Because <laughs> now we off. have the, the double hug that ends Hulkamania. I love this because Luger's looking at this entire thing and he tells the Yeti to stop doing what he's doing. And he puts a capper on it by putting Hogan in the torture rack. And then he puts Savage uh, in the torture rack. Great nickname for the show, too, Torture Rack. (laughs) (laughs) He didn't put Savage in the torture rack. Buffer then announces that the Giant won by DQ. However, Buffer does say that the belt can't change hands on a disqualification, but Giant still grabs the belt and poses with it. Well, for 24 hours. Yes. He'll win the belt on Nitro by DQ. I don't know how they explained it. It was reversed somehow. Yeah, Jimmy Hart came on and confessed that when he signed the contract for this match, there was a stipulation that said a disqualification could cause a champion, and that's how the Giant gets the belt, and that's how it ends up being held up. That's a bad way to put over your monster. You're absolutely right. This This could not have been booked worse if you're trying to build this massive heel. So that does it for Halloween Havoc 1995. Oh, boy. Gallon 1 to 10, Goudreau, what do you give Halloween Havoc 95? Boy, unless you're a pseudo-masochist, there's nothing here for you. This this is a contender for not just one of the worst pay-per-views you'll see. This might be one of the five worst main events a pay-per-view has ever put on. Look, most of the stuff on the show is plotting and boring, but this was 20 minutes when you include all the shenanigans. Like, it's a good thing this was Halloween Havoc, because this is harder to watch than some snuff films. It's as bad as its reputation. I mean, there, there's the opener is a pretty good match. It, it's solid. It's definitely the best thing on the show by far, but it's nowhere near enough to save or salvage something that I would argue is garbage from top to bottom. It's everything that was wrong with WCW at the time. Dusty finishes, turns that didn't make a whole lot of sense, you know, bad psychology with wrestlers that are in cahoots, but yet they still wrestle each other full force. Obvious <laughs> turn with Ric Flair, trying something absurd, like, you know, the monster truck match, that's about as ridiculous as having Robocop run in and rip a cage off. I'm sure oh, yeah. WCW would never do something like that. Oh, wait, right, <laughs> we just haven't talked about it yet. That's five years before, yep. This is a two-odd ten. I don't know if I've seen a lot of pay-per-views worse than this. I can think of one definitively, but... You know, WCW 1995 is some of the worst wrestling you will see until WCW 2000 rolls around. <laughs> I am not looking forward to getting to that era because, as I've said before, I've never seen it. Wow. You said two? Yeah. You and I are on complete opposite ends here. Now, I want to agree with you on this. A, I think this show is very poorly paced. I think the way these matches are put on this card is just piss poor. I think the monster truck shit we could have done without. Experiment or not. I think Bischoff should have seen the writing on the wall on that. And once he kind of outlined this, he said, you know what? I don't think this will work. But I will say, Flair, Sting, Arn, Anderson, Pillman is a pretty good match. It's a really good match, actually. And there's so much entertaining nonsense on this show, Matt. The Savage promo. The Dungeon of Doom promo. The fucking ending of this pay-per-view is notorious. You just go on YouTube. As I was talking to you earlier, the reason why I was laughing so hard was I YouTubed the actual ending of this, and I was watching it again, and I could not stop laughing again. It is ridiculous. And I think the opening match, while overlong, is still pretty good ring work, and it's uh, a prelude to what we're going to eventually see from DDP when he becomes one of the biggest stars in WCW's history. So I think the good and the ridiculous outweighs the bad on this. But I'm not going to go too high. I think for entertainment purposes, I got to go with a six here. I just think there is so much to laugh at with this. If you like your wrestling ridiculous and absurd, this is the one for you. And I, I said that when I said at the beginning, is absolutely right. This re- represents the best and worst of WCW wrestling, not just in this era, but in its entire run. 
And I just think it's funny. Like, YouTube the Savage promo. YouTube the Dungeon of Doom promo. YouTube the ending of this pay-per-view. And I guarantee you will be laughing your ass off. And for that, I can't give it a, a bad grade. I just can't. All right. So, Matt, you've said your piece. What was your highlight of this pay-per-view? What was your low light? What was the part that you were just like, okay, enough of this? The main event is the low light by far. Highlight would just be the pop of the flare punch to sting because uh, <laughs> even though it was as ob- it was as telegraphed as could be the crowd still was vocally upset so it showed that you can have stuff be really obvious but as long as you have people invested it can outweigh it and, and it led to some good things i think it was a good kickoff to what we were going to get with the new horseman um the low point for me was the monster truck stuff i think that's just Stupid and has no place on the show. Uh, the highlight for me was just like the last WCW show. It's going to be something that involves Arn Anderson. I think this this Flair Sting Arn Brian Pillman match is great. Again, it involves a lot of good psychology here, and there's a lot of good stuff in that match. And on a show full of, I think, just entertaining things. If you're looking for pure wrestling, that's one that uh, I think you can gravitate towards. Okay, so next week, Matt, we're going to go back to the WWF and we're going to talk Survivor Series '95. What do you remember about Survivor Series 95? So I remember one, one of the big things was that there's the, you know, the end of the Diesel title reign. That's probably the biggest. Uh, but I would say Undertaker's team name cracked me up. The Dark Side. <laughs> like, like that has been synonymous with me as long as I can remember. So those are the, those are the two big things I remember. I remember a ridiculously booked match involving Michaels and Razor. Just a weirdly booked match that we'll definitely talk about when we get to it, considering who books that match. And I remember the final match, as you mentioned, the Diesel-Bret Hart match. But I'm going in kind of cold. I don't know exactly what to expect. It's not one I revisit too often, but I do remember it being kind of a highlight of 1995. All right, Matt, so you're going to do what you normally do here. We've In the last two weeks, we've reviewed a WCW event and a WWF event. Which one gets the edge here? God, you're asking me to pick between two subpar shows, but I'll side with the WWF again because I just I can't say enough bad things about Halloween Havoc 95. Like it is, I, I think it is the worst, one of the worst pay-per-views I've ever seen. Oh, wait till we get to Starcade 95, sir. You know what? I'm going to go with Halloween Havoc 95 just because of the absurdity of it. Hogan's height in WCW hasn't come yet, and we're seeing kind of the downfall of him keeping this babyface character for as long as he has and trying to do new things with him. And the absurdity of this pay-per-view needs to be seen to be believed. And, you know, it's funny, Matt, because you are one who's always advocated The Undertaker. You have posted many times on your Facebook how much you love that character and uh, Mark Calloway as a performer, yet you can't go with the supernatural stuff on this show. Yeah, because I thought that it crossed the line. Okay. Uh, one of the things about The Undertaker is that I always felt he was never above the the ridiculous. And I kind of feel like because this was so absurd, and I felt like Hogan was in on it because his, his acting never sold. Like, Undertaker, his acting always sold it. Part of it was also he had Paul Bearer to really play it up as well. Because I think he was he was believably cartoony in a way that the Dungeon of Doom never was for me. All right. So I can't wait to get into this run of The Undertaker with you. And I can't wait to uh, talk more Monday Night Wars next week. Give us some feedback. Let us know how we're doing. Are we approaching this in the way that you would approach it? You know, Let us know in the comments and any pl- podcast pl- platform you gravitate towards. Matt, I appreciate you going over these shows with me. We have always said we wanted to do a wrestling podcast. I think we've done four pretty good shows at this point. And next week, it's going to get even better because at least I think we're going to see better wrestling next week than we saw this week. (laughs) Oh, for sure. And until next week when we review Survivor Series 1995, we'll see you at the matches. Thank you, sir. 